Recorded live.
one more page again. Heavenly Father, thanks God for the Sabbath day. Thanks for the sunshine, clear roads. 
clear letter. Although these letters may not always be clear, there may be a lot of roadblocks in this summary places. Equally, we need to ask Lord God to help us to identify those. Ask you, Lord God, to show us devil's tactics in advance. Ask you, Lord God, to help us not fall in the potholes. Ask you, Lord God, not fall for the decoys and the deceptions of the world. Ask, Lord God, for a clear path that you shine your light upon our path, Lord God, and be our light. Lead us and guide us as the good shepherd. Uh, help us, God, to follow you and not follow our own way. Help us not follow the world and the teachings of the world. Help us, Lord God, to search your spirit and truth and only, Lord God, in your spirit and in your truth. Thank you, God, for your spirit. We ask, Lord God, for your special blessing and anointing on this service today. I ask God to put your words into my mouth, Lord, let me speak only what you want me to say, nothing less. Nothing more. Now I ask you to take away, Lord God. Fill me, Lord God, with your word. Help me, God, to be close to this day. I ask you, Lord God, to anoint the hearts and the ears of Lord God for the hearing and receiving of your word, not mine. I ask you, Lord God, to lead us and guide us and direct us this day where we are to go from this point on. Lord, you've been faithful up to this point, and I know you do not change, but you will be faithful even to the end. Lord, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end, the offer, and the finisher of our faith. We ask, Lord God, your guidance to stay at every day without end. We ask, Lord God, that you be our shepherd, our door, our foundation, our high tower, our refuge, our buckler, and everything that we need. Lord, you are our shepherd. We shall not want anything or anyone else. Lord God, you are sufficient for us. So, Lord God, if we serve you, we must serve you in spirit and there is no other way. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see. Help us understand. Open our ears, Lord. Hear your voice. Lord, help us, Lord God, to get rid of the will of distraction. Help us, Lord, to surrender fully to your will, to your spirit, to worship power in our lives. God, Lord God, save us. Lord, help us. Help us, God, help us. Please, God, help us. Lord, we live in this world of darkness and Babylon. We're raised in it. Lord God, Isaiah was a man in a land full of bad tongues, lying tongues and filthy tongues. He was raised in that, and that's the way he spoke. So he asked God to deliver the tongue, sanctify his tongue, and he did. You are faithful, Lord. What you did for him, you did for us. Oh, Lord, I thank you, God, for every time you delivered us, saved us, healed us, showed us the truth, worked with us, had patience with us. Your long suffering, no one, no one is more patient than you. Thank you, God, for mercy and your grace that abides upon us every day. But we know, Lord, that there's a time coming. Man, your patience will run out. Judgment must come, and that judgment will be just. Right? Help us, Lord. And when that day comes, that we be ready, covered with your blood, filled with your spirit, down clean, growing and accomplishing the right on earth. Your blood is high. There is nothing else. No flesh, no form. There is no form. 
God and us who cannot walk with the vanity but is walking in the of Help us, God, prepare for the day of Passover when the earth is Help us, Lord, prepare for the great white throne judgment. Touch us this day. Pass us not by. Take right to the past. For those listening on the internet, thanks for joining us today. This is Pastor Tim of LifeSolveLifeMinistries.com. We're coming to you today from a live congregation. We thank you for joining us, whether you're listening live or in the archives later in the week. Give a shout out to Lisa in New York State, as well as Bob and Cheryl in Michigan, and Shanika in Pennsylvania, and all the others that may be joining us. We welcome you, and we welcome you every week. Let's turn to the book of Corinthians. And we're going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible, but you're welcome to follow along the King James or whatever you have there. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And after the sermon, I'm going to open up the floor for questions and answers. And we'll do uh, questions and answers over the Internet first after the sermon. Uh, because uh, it will automatically disconnect at a certain point so we'll get the people on the internet questions and answers after the sermon and then after the internet shuts off or I shut it off whichever comes first then we'll do questions and answers right here when Jesus and Paul and all the apostles saw they always gave people opportunity for questions and answers but it needs to come after the sermon so I don't lose the flow of what God is saying so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Let's turn to verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. It says, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, I have, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which he was talking spiritually. This is a spiritual reputation of my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right there we have a commandment. Not maybe or if you want to, but do this. It's a commandment. Do this in remembrance of me. So we don't do this uh, like a lot of people do it, of just uh, communion among yourselves, which that's part of it, but the main part of it is remembering the death of Jesus. That's a major thing. I mean, that's just major. You know, do this in remembrance of me, that my body was broken for you, you know. In this, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. And again, this is a commandment. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It doesn't say do it often, but it says do this 
and as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So that means every time you do it, do it in remembrance of me. It doesn't say do it every week. That's not what it means. That's not the spiritual principle behind it. Uh, Fourth of July comes once a year. Thanksgiving comes once a year, whatever. You want to choose whether you keep those days or not. But these things come once a year. And what is more important than to remember the dates or even, you know, that Jesus died for us? He didn't die every day for us. He did it one time. That's a very, very, very special occasion. And if we keep it one time a year, then that will help us to keep a reverence for it. If the if you do it every day, every week, every month, you might have a reverence for it, a deep respect for it, but not as much as if you did it just on the date that he died and spent months preparing for it. That's much more reverence. That's much more careful thought. That's more careful preparation. In the time leading up to it, which we only got two months left, in the time leading is two months, the April 3rd. It's going to be Passover, April 3rd. And you take Passover communion at sunset evening on April 3rd. And then you do foot washing after that. That's commanded as well. And then you leave and depart. You don't have no feast that day. You have communion, your bread and juice, wine, whatever. Your communion, foot washing, do a song and you leave. It, It ain't no feast. But then the next night, you come back and do the night to be much observed. That's something that most people, including myself, have neglected, but it's a commandment as well. It's a night to be much observed that very next night to remember the night that they brought him out of Egypt, which is a spiritual symbolism for that he brought it out of sin. You know? So anyway, it says, do this remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread, they don't say do it often, but as often as you do it, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord to death until he comes. In other words, every year until he comes, whether it's thousands of years from the time he wrote this, or in the last three and a half years, do this until he comes. It doesn't say do this until uh, fulfillment of the new covenant, until things are done away, whatever. It's until he comes, right? So this ain't no temporary thing. Very well, until he comes. But verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's just like being the soldier that nailed him on the cross. If you take of that communion and in an unworthy manner, there's a lot of debate about what that means. But that's a very serious thing. Whatever it means, it's very, very, very serious to do this unworthy manner. Taking the communion is something for only those that have surrendered their life to Christ, a total surrender, that they are saved. I know the fullness of salvation is when we're resurrected, but nevertheless, we're saved when we give our lives to God and when we get baptized, we are saved but we can lose that salvation, and it's a process of salvation. We have to work out our salvation with fear of trinity. But we have that seed of salvation. We are considered safe. And then it's fully intact when we're resurrected. And you can't lose it at that point once you're resurrected. Unworthy manner 
is to do this in a like manner. To do it every week is an unworthy manner. To do it every month is an unworthy manner. This is hard to put in words because this is gigantic to take that bread, to take that blood of Jesus Christ. Treat that in such a light manner as to do it every time we come together. It's beyond words to me. It's such a major thing. It takes months of praying and preparation for this. It's the guilty of the body and the blood. Wow. That's serious. This is major. Verse 28. But a man must, must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. But he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks a judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So we've got to really take time to examine ourselves and to judge the body rightly. What does that mean about judging the body? We know we're examining ourselves, but judge the body. That means judge your physical body, about what you're doing in the flesh, what you're wearing, what you're doing in the flesh, as well as judging those among you. Because in one essence, this is not only taking the body and blood, of Christ, but it's taking communion with the body of Christ, because that is the body of Christ, the body and blood, right? And what is, spiritually speaking, the body of Christ today is the church. And we are, in one spiritual sense, becoming one with Christ. As we take that body and blood, and I pass the cup to you, and you pass the cup, and you pass the cup, we pass the plate of the bread, we're taking communion not only with him but with one another. And if you've not judged, if you're like just put an ad in the paper and say everybody come for communion and all these people come in, you don't know their lives, you don't know what they're doing, that's a serious thing to take communion with a lost person. That's very, very, very serious. So you've got to judge the body, your body, and the body of Christ that you're meeting. Verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and the number sleep. In other words, people have actually died just because they took communion wrongfully. Now, that's, that's a big thing. I've never heard that in the churches of Babylon before, that you could take this communion and die because you did it wrong. i never heard that in the Pentecostal churches, have you? That's a big thing. I mean, that, it looks like they would teach that because that's a big thing. It's serious, ain't it? And they just ignored it. You know, it's like, well, let's cut it, you know, let's invite all your family, invite anybody and everybody to do this with us. It's insane. Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, we got to examine ourselves, judge ourselves, and get right and repent so that when we go to judgment, that we're not going to face condemnation. That's what that means so that we won't be cast into the lake of fire if we judge ourselves. Verse 32, that when we are judged, because we're all going to face judgment to Christ, uh, and we're also judged today among each other, we're judging each other, that when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So we have judgment 
now on a constant basis. God is constantly judging us now. We're judging one another, correcting one another, helping one another, and God is doing that constantly to us. And if we do it now in this world, then we won't have to fear then. Verse 33. But then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, talking about Passover, not everyday Passover, when you come together to eat the communion, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let us eat at home. So this ain't a time to stuff your mouth. Let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. In other words, you've got to be careful in even how much food you have at that communion because it's not a normal meal. It's not for filling the stomach. It's not for getting rid of your hunger. This is a serious thing that you're taking the body and blood of Christ. This ain't no regular meal. And so you eat at home. So you don't, you're not going to have a full meal. You're just going to have the communion, and that's it. And it says, to be many matters, I will arrange when I come. And Paul comes to the Corinthian church. So what I want to talk about today is examine self, examining yourself. Define your own faults, your own sins, your own weaknesses, the things that God sees that you may not see yet. And then confess those sins and repent. That's something every one of us has to do. I have to do it. Everybody on the entire planet, every lives, has to do this. Examine yourself, confess your sins, and repent. And that we should not turn a blind eye to sin, whether it's in yourself or in the church. You should not turn a blind eye to sin. Because if you do, then next thing you know, it's going to be judgment day. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. Chapter 13, which is the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. Corinthians 13. And God willing, let's read this whole chapter. 2 Corinthians 13. Paul says, This is the third time I am coming to you. This is the last chapter of both letters of Corinthians. So this is Paul's final word that we have on record to this church, to this particular church. Verse 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for the proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Test yourselves, or examine yourselves. I think King James says, uh, uh, examine yourself. Test or examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. 
if you are in the faith. You know, in the churches of Babylon, they're like, a lot of them is like, don't worry. You said that prayer 60 years ago, you're saved. Period. You know, no examining, you know, you're saved. Don't worry about it. Don't second guess it. But this says, test yourself. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? We can fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. In other words, if we're in Christ, truly in Christ, truly surrendered 100% to Christ and follow him and don't turn back, then we're not going to fail the test. Now, we pray to God that you do not do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. I'm going to read a note in my study Bible that will explain this a little bit during a minute. Verse 9. But we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. And this we also pray for, that you may be made complete. So Paul is saying, I want to see you all perfected. I want to see you all made complete. He, he established that church of Corinth. He and, and uh, then he went out to establish other churches. He visited again. He wrote letters more than once. Uh, chances are he wrote more than these two letters to Corinth. There's evidence saying he did. But each time he either visited or wrote, there was some need for correction. And he realized, you know, it takes time as a journey. And he was careful to make those corrections. And his goal was to see that church perfected. His goal was to see them made complete. Verse 10. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice and be made complete be confident, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I'm going to read the notes here uh, in the study Bible of what the publisher wrote about this. It says, uh, Paul informed the Corinthians that he would deal biblically, biblically with any sin found in Corinth. Those Corinthians, still seeking proof that Paul was a genuine apostle, would have it when he arrived. They may have gotten more than they bargained for, however, for Paul was going to use his apostolic authority and power to deal with any sin and rebellion that he found there. Keeping that in mind and everything that we just read, let's back up a few verses to chapter 12. And let's start verse 19, chapter 12, verse 19. 
At this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all of you upbuilding, beloved, for I am not, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not that I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. In other words, they were testing. They were testing Paul. He was testing them. That perhaps there will be, he's afraid that there's going to be strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, uh, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So these are some of the things that was a problem in that church. And he's trying to help them, coach them, and uh, correct them in a loving manner as much as possible. But he also had to name some of these problems, you know. And he's like, I hope that these things can be corrected through this letter so that when I come, that I won't have to use severity, that I won't have to use authority uh, any more than necessary. So he's hoping for the best, that he's warning and ready to give judgment and discipline, if necessary, and to disfellowship uh, people. To understand this fully, you have to go back to some other verses as well, other places. Let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and learn more about what was happening at that church. 1 Corinthians 5. Oh, I'm gonna, while you're turning there, I'm going to read another note. This note says... Uh, when he visited them, Paul did not want to find the Corinthians in the same sorry spiritual condition as on his last visit. If he found that they were not what he wished, still practicing the sins he listed, they would find him not as they wished. He would have come to discipline them. To find the Corinthians still living in unrepentant sin would have both humiliate and sadden Paul. This warning was designed to prevent that from happening so they would get their acts together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, let's try to read this whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and the immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So this is... Uh, Marrying your stepmom. And this, this was happening in that church. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. They didn't remove that person. They knew it was going on, that this man had married or laid with and found his stepmom. And they didn't deal with it. They didn't disfellowship that person. They made a mistake of not judging righteously and not bringing discipline. So Paul's like, if I have to, I will bring discipline. Verse 3, for I on my part, though absent in body, 
the present spirit have already judged Church is a bad one. Say, don't judge anybody, anytime, for any reason. That's not biblical. Paul judged this person, and he wasn't even there. He just heard about what's going on and judged this person. There is righteous judgment. The Bible says in John chapter 7, verse 24, judge not with appearance, but with righteous judgment, John 7, 24. Judge with righteous judgment. You can judge, but you have to do so righteously. So uh, unrighteous judgment would be based on either false doctrine, that you're judging for somebody that's judging somebody for doing something that's not really and truly wrong. That would be a false judgment. Uh, or judging based on not a full understanding of the situation. So there's a lot of ways you can judge wrong. But, so you have to make sure that you're judging according to true doctrine and not just what you've been taught all your life or by the Internet or whatever. You've got to make righteous, true judgment by true doctrine and with a full understanding of what's going on. I'm sure Paul, when he heard of this sin, it was from somebody he really trusted, you know? Somebody that he knew wasn't telling a lie or fribbing or just gossiping. Somebody he trusted, maybe even two or three witnesses, right? Or else he wouldn't have judged this. But he says, I have already judged him. Who has so committed this as though the hour present? Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, and when you look up the Greek there, it actually says Jesus. And it's spelled I'll get this slightly wrong, but I think this is right. What looks like an I, E-S-U-E-S. Now, that might be wrong slightly. But main point I want to point out is what looks like an eye in the Greek and what looks like an eye in the original King James 1611, it's not an eye. Everybody looks at that in Greek. They look at the original 1611 and they say, well, it's I-E-S, and then they're like, and that's pronounced with a Y. It's not pronounced with a Y, and it's not an I either. Both of those theories are wrong because at the time it was called a jot, J-O-T. That is what they actually called that letter. They didn't call it letter I. They called it the jot, J-O-T. And it's also known as the jota, J-O-T-T-A. Now, eventually, they called it the iota. But that was only because of the Masorites and the people that were speaking the Syrian tongue that they corrupted the language. But if you go back before the corruption, if you go back, to what they were actually speaking during Jesus' time and Paul's time, it was the jot or the jotter. And that's why the King James says, not one jot shall be removed from, from the law. So anyway, it said Jesus, it was the jot, and it was pronounced Jesus. That's a whole other subject, so I've just got to bring that up. Because it says right here in the name. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that I condemn that person to hell if necessary. I do that so that he can get saved. 
because to continue to allow him to come to service is to continue to allow him to think that he's saved, to continue to treat him as a brother in Christ, to continue to have communion with him, that's going to bring sin into the church. And it's not a perfect example of the church. It's not, it's not right. You've got to deal with that sin. You can't turn a blind eye to it. So disfellowship him. And hopefully he'll repent. Hopefully. But I will deliver him over to the devil so that he can suffer, so that he can learn his lessons, so that he'll live in a miserable life until he surrenders. But to just say, I love you, brother, and you can keep coming to church forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never repent, that's not true love. If you really, 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 really love them, sometimes you've got to let them go. Let them learn their lesson, and hopefully they will repent. And that's what God wanted, and that's what Paul wanted. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, leaven is the whole lump of dough? He's saying to these people, y'all think you're pretty good. But don't you know that one member of that church is ruining your whole congregation? Don't you know he's going to corrupt all of you because you're going to take communion? Verse 7, clean out the old leaven. Wow. Thank you, God. Because that communion you're taking that bread, that unleavened bread. You're taking that bread without sin. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. This was written decades after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Written decades after the crucifixion, and he says, let us keep the feast. How come these churches don't read this? But let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This directly ties the whole matter more than what I ever realized until right now that he's talking about taking communion. He's talking about taking Passover communion. And he's like, you've got to disfellowship this person before then. You've got to deal with this sin, and you've got to do it fast because Passover's coming up. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, let us keep this feast, but not with this sinner. Remove this leavening because this one leavening is ruining the whole congregation. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's anybody here that you should disfellowship. But I'm saying that we must all examine ourselves and get ready for Passover. But in that particular church, there was one that they needed to disfellowship. Verse 9, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with immoral persons, people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world and with the covenants and spoilers and with the idolaters. For then you would not have to go, for then you would have to go out of the world but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or a doubter or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For 
what I for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? That those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. Now, don't misunderstand this either. He's not saying that you need to hang out with the wicked of the world. He's not saying that you need to hang out with the wicked of the world. We've got to look at the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We've got to look at every verse dealing with this to decide whether or not we can hang out with the wicked. And we can. That's bad. Uh, bad company corrupts marriage, right? Something like that. So then we do have to judge even the outsiders. But he's saying what I'm addressing right now is in the church. That's what he's saying. So that is what his hope was, is that they would examine the whole church, that they would examine their congregation, that they would examine themselves. And because they did not disfellowship that man, it was a sin to them. It was a sin to them that they were turning a blind eye to sin. Let's look at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, verse 37. Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. This is the sermon of Peter. And he had a large gathering, and they were pierced to the heart. This wasn't a feel-good message. This wasn't a shouting message. This wasn't a dancing message. There was a message that made them examine themselves. It was a message that made them think about their sins, about their life that they were living and the problems that they had that were pierced in the heart. You can't be pierced in the heart unless you're convicted of the Holy Spirit through examination. That you're like, hmm, Preacher saying this, and I'm examining myself, and I know I'm guilty, pierced in the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? You see those tracts or gospel tracts that says, What shall we do, or what must I do to be saved? And this was the response from Peter, verse 38. Peter said to them, Does it say, does it say here, Say a prayer after me. Repeat the words after me. You just say the sinner's prayer. That's not what he said. There's no words in the whole Bible that says just repeat after me or just say a prayer and that's all there is to it. But he said, repent. That word repent means turn around, change. Repent and each of you be baptized. The word baptized means to be fully immersed with water in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So we're baptized in water for forgiveness of sin. Now, yes, we must say a prayer, of course, as soon as you, like, I should it. Of course, you say that prayer. And, of course, God does accept you that very moment that you say, oh, God, be my Lord and Savior, please forgive me. Of course, he accepts you at that moment. But that moment is like saying, will you marry me? Yes. 
That's what it's like. So the ring ain't on your finger yet. It's just agreeing, Lord, will you accept me? My, you know, will you be my Lord and Savior? And he says yes. That's at the first prayer to say. But it's not finalized. Now, of course, we don't do the rings thing, but nevertheless, I'm using that analogy because it's something we're so familiar with. But when you get baptized, that's when it's finalized, as much as can be in this life until the resurrection. That when you're baptized, it's the same as not just saying yes, but saying and so death departs. It's saying, it's done. It's saying that I am crucified and resurrected in Christ. I go down. I am dead. I am crucified. The old man is gone. I come up. I'm born again. That is when you're born again, not when you say the prayer. You're born again when you go down and come back up out of the womb. That you come up a new man in Christ Jesus that you are forgiven of your sins at that moment and born again. Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. He said you must be born again of blood and of the water. That's talking about baptism. And the blood is the crucifixion, that you're crucified and resurrected with Christ at the baptism. And it says here, forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive, not might, not maybe, not stand there for three hours and beg, not come back every week until it happens, but you will. You get baptized, and if you're sincere and you have repented, you will receive the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, at that time, at that moment. Now, it's possible there are biblical examples of receiving the Holy Spirit before me or even after them, according to your mind and your heart of where you're at. It's possible to receive it at different times. There's biblical examples. But for the most part, in general, the way it's supposed to work, ideally, God's perfect will, is that when you are baptized, that you receive that Holy Spirit right then. And you will if you are true and you have repented. Now, you may still have some problems to deal with. You may still have some things you still need to get out of your life. But as far as every bit of your mind at that time is, I surrender, I repent. You may not know something is a sin yet. You still have to get it out. That's why at Passover, we take the blood and body of Christ and we're saved, but then you've got seven days of unleavened bread. Those seven days of unleavened bread pictures 7,000 years of mankind working out your fear, working out the salvation fear, trembling. That yes, you're saved, but then you've got to continue, to continue, to continue to work and learn and grow and unlearn and, and deal with the sin, and that's the seven days of unleavened bread. So when we keep the feast days of the Lord, we learn these things. And that's why a lot of the churches of Babylon don't know anything because they don't keep the feast days. When you keep the feast days as commanded and do it in a new covenant spirit, not old covenant spirit, but new covenant spirit, that means understanding 
why these holy days exist in the first place. Okay? So Old Covenant is like, well, we do it because the Hebrews did it, because the Jews did it, because we want to look like them, sound like them, and because that's Hebrew roots. And that's wrong. But if we do it because the reason these holy days exist is to teach us about Christ and about the plan of salvation. That plan of salvation is so much more encompassing than anything that the churches of this world teach. So much more and so much more perfect, so much more complete, that much more people are going to get saved than what we've been led to believe. We've been led to believe by the churches of Babylon that God's losing that he created billions and billions and billions of people on this planet, something like 7 billion now, and who knows how many billions in in past thousands of years, 6,000 years, and only a few are saved. And if we look right now with, you know, not really understanding God's plan of salvation, if we look at the condition of the world right now, it looks pretty bleak. You know, where are God's people? How many miles would we have to travel to find another congregation meeting today, truly, you know, and not in Hebrew roots, of course. It looks pretty bleak. But if we study the feast days, not doing it in a Hebrew roots focus, but doing it in a God focus, a Jesus Christ focus, a Holy Spirit focus, that how he's going to save mankind through the Passover, through the days of unleavened bread, through Pentecost, through the Feast of Trumpets, through all the things that all these days symbolize how there's a process of time, then we understand better and there's a whole lot more hope because there's more than one resurrection. Thank God there is more than one resurrection. Praise God. But right here in verse 38, it says, Repent, each of you, individually, each of you, and be baptized. So the conviction of the heart, in verse 30, 37, piercing of the heart, conviction and repentance and action of being baptized, this process. Now, in order to be baptized, in order to repent, we've got to know what our sins are. And that is where a big problem lies. I mean, really. Big problem is that most people do not even know what their sins are. So that's why we have to examine ourselves. That's why we have to take time, careful time, to examine ourselves. That's why we must take the Passover and the communion so seriously is because if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. You know? If you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. If you're blind, you don't know you're blind spiritually. So you've got to take time to examine yourself. You've got to take time to test yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. What are my sins? What are my faults? What are my problems? What am I overlooking? And what am I turning a blind eye to in myself? What am I compromising with? We've got to know what our sins are before we can judge anybody else. Right? We've got to pull the moat out of our own eye before we do it to another brother. Right? There's nothing wrong we're pointing out to another brother their sin if we've got it right ourselves. 
So we can't point out to another brother, well, you're drinking a 12-pack every day of the week, if we're doing that very same thing ourselves. That we've got to judge righteously, and if we see, for example, uh, a church member, congregation member, in Ingalls Grocery Store with a 12-pack, we don't necessarily immediately condemn him and judge him and thinking he's going to drink that 12-pack tonight because the truth is, as far as we know, unless we have other information, the truth is perhaps maybe that 6-pack or 12-pack is going to last him six months. Perhaps with 12 beers, that may, seem, that may sound impossible, but it's not impossible. That 12 beers could last that man six months in 12 beers. So is that, now if he is an alcoholic, yeah, that's a problem. But if he's not an alcoholic and that is going to last him six months, that's not a problem. And we shouldn't make a big deal out of it unless it is a problem. In other words, the point is judge righteous, not by appearance, not making up or jumping to conclusions, but get it right in your own life first, examine yourself. Then you have the right to say, brother, I love you, let me help you with this. And then if that brother or sister doesn't confess, doesn't admit they've got a problem, they, they might not even know they've got the problem. They not even realize it because they've not examined themselves. And that's the big problem. So, but once they are approached and the problem is real and true, biblically, with a full knowledge, full understanding of what the situation is, and we approach them, it should be done one person approaching them. The best thing is for a man to approach a man a woman to approach a woman, if possible, one person. Then, if it doesn't work and you give them time to repent, and you pray for them, you fast for them, you help them, you call them up, you write them, you're there to help them work it out, but a certain amount of time passes and they're still in that sin, then you bring another brother or sister, and two of you approach them in love, and again, you give them a time to confess and repent, and if they still don't confess and repent, then you take it to the pastor. Then the pastor goes to them, gives them time to repent. It's not immediate. But now sometimes it is immediate. Sometimes you just got to, you know, get the devil out of there according to the situation. Every situation is different. But in general, most of the time, this is how it works, a gradual helping that person. And then, of course, they still don't repent. After the pastor addresses it, then there's disfellowship. And that disfellowship must come sometimes. It's not a pleasant thing, but sometimes it must occur for their own sake and for ours as well. Now, I really feel led to call for a fast. Two months until Passover, and I know I'm not your pastor, but I really, really feel led to say that we must fast. I'm calling for every person in this gathering here, and every person that hears my voice in the internet, live, and in the archives later, that if you can hear me, I'm asking you to go on a fast. I'm not going to tell you when to start your fast. I'm not going to tell you when to finish your fast. But I'm asking 
that you please go on fast. We need to be fasting more in this time and day that we're living in now than ever before in all of human history. This is the time that we need to be fasting. The book of Joel talks about that, how we need to call a Solomon sinner and humble ourselves and fast and even weep. Too many so-called churches out there that just want to get together and have a good time and shout and dance and just be happy and there's an error in the spirit. There's a time to be joyous. There's a time to shout. There's a time to dance. There's a time to leap in the temple. But there's also a time for weak crying and fasting and careful examination. And as we go forward Passover, what better time? What better time to really, really take slow, deep, sincere time to examine ourselves? We've got to get ready. Time is short. I'm sure we need to fast. We need to look in the mirror and see ourselves the way God sees us. And I, I encourage you to actually, literally, physically do that. Look in the mirror and say, Lord, what do you see? Something like that. What do you see? What is it about me? that I've not given up yet? What is it I need to surrender? What is it that I don't know yet? What is it that I've not yet professed? What is it I've not yet repented? What is it that I'm ignorant about? Is it my tongue? Is it my walk? Is it my sight? Is it my hearing? Is it my example? What is it? Because we all have sin. I confess right now, I have sin in my life. If I say I don't, I'm a liar. I've got sin in my life. You will never find a perfect pastor yet or evangelist. You're not going to find it. Then it may take from sunrise to sunset, and we know what it is, and we repent. Or it might take a full 24 hours or 72 hours or 40 days. It may take six months. I don't know. Each individual, I'm asking you to fast. Scriptures tell us that if somebody asks us to go one mile with them, that we are to go two miles. So based on that scripture, I'm asking you. I'm asking you to fast in a careful examination of however long it takes for you individually to find out what is still left, what kind of leavening is still left to prepare not only for Passover, but for the resurrection and judgment day. Like I said, it may take 12 hours or it may take many days. Don't go into this thinking, I ain't got nothing to find. Go into this thinking, I know there's something. What is it? That should be our mindset. I know there's something. What is it? And you may already know what it is. But maybe there's more to it than you know. Maybe there's two things or three things or four or five things. There might be a lot of things. You might not want to, you might not even want to stop fasting once you find out what it is. Maybe you might even want to keep fasting 
in order for God to empower you to not only realize it, but to be cleansed of it. Let it be between you and God. Let's go to the book of 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 1. One John chapter one verse five. Verse five, one John one, verse five. Book one John, which is right before the book of Revelation very close to it, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's talking about darkness earlier before service. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Not one degree. Not even a shadow. There's no shadow of turning. There's no shadow of variance. No darkness at all. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that's communion with him. If we say we have fellowship, communion with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have communion with one another. And the blood, blood and body of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our faults, if we confess, our faults. That word confess is major. I'm on the line to, because that's missing in the church today. If we confess our sin, this ain't talking only about confessing to God. It's also talking about confessing to one another. We're going to read some more scriptures about that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. Amen. Praise God. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we have to confess our sins. Is that only to God? Or should we confess to our brothers and sisters as well? Let's read some other scriptures to turn to the book of Hebrews, the last there, Book of Hebrews, just a few pages. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Verse 1. 
back at one verse, verse 40. Chapter 11, verse 40. Say, in the original scriptures, there was no chapter division. Not until 1590 or so. Up until 1500s, there was no chapter divisions or verse divisions in the Bible. So it's very, very, very important as you study and read to very, very often back it up a little bit. Verse 40, it says, because God, that's beautiful words, because God, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be perfect. What is it talking about? Well, if you read the whole chapter of 11, that's called the chapter of faith, about how Moses, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, and others, how they all walked by faith. And so then when you get to verse 40, because God has provided something better for us, something better for us than Moses, something better for us than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That's something to really, really, really think about. Moses, Abraham, would not be made perfect without us. Moses' salvation has something to do with you. I never heard that before in any of these churches. You can only learn this stuff by reading the scriptures. How, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Because Jesus said at least two times that I can remember, maybe more, maybe three times, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Nobody understands what that means. What does it mean that the last shall be first and the first shall be last? It means you had Moses and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all those, and then you've got the last generation. And the last will be first. We are going to be first resurrected. When we are resurrected, Moses will still be in the ground. Now the churches of Babylon says that Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Noah, and all of them is going to rise at the same time we're going to rise. Not true. Because they did not have the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And only through Jesus, not the law, not the old covenant, only through the crucifixion of Jesus are we going to enter into the kingdom of heaven fully. Only. And so the last generation, those that came after Jesus, those that came in the new covenant time, get to be raised up first. If you look at the whole context of everything he said in those chapters, he's talking about that uh, the husbandman, the person that takes cure, cure of the vineyard and this whole kingdom, this whole earth and everything is the vineyard that he hires somebody at the beginning, right, for a penny then he hires some more comes along for a penny he hires some more, comes along for a penny and then the last people come along for the same wage and then when it comes payday he paid the last first and he paid them the same wage as the first people that came along had been working way earlier, right? We're the last people. We get paid first. We all enter into the kingdom that there's only, each person has to enter in at a time. It's a narrow road, and only so many people are going to enter in the fullness of the kingdom at a time. And 
they must learn about us. The scriptures are still being written. The word of God is still living. The word of God is still being spoken. The word of God is still being written. It's not done. It's not done. I firmly believe that Moses and Noah is going to read about us. That they're going to be told our testimonies, our stories, when they rise in the second resurrection. And they rise in the second resurrection and they're going to learn the fullness of Jesus. They knew about Jesus. They might not have known it by that name. They knew the name of G, J-E-H. Not the same as the letter G, but sound very similar. They knew about God. They knew that the Messiah was promised to be born in Bethlehem. They knew those prophecies, but they wasn't baptized in Jesus. Now, yes, they were, in a way, foreshadowing, symbolically baptized in the Red Sea, but they wasn't truly, truly, truly baptized in Jesus. And so they must rise in the second resurrection. There's no other way. And when they rise in second resurrection, in the flesh, as physical human beings with new bodies, not reincarnation, but actually given a body as they come up out of the grave and given a body that's completely different from reincarnation, that they're going to learn about us, about what we went through in the end time. They've not received the reward yet. So, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, we do have a great cloud of witnesses about what they did in their lives and the faith that they lived for Christ surrounding us. Let us also, because their lives depend on it, because without us, they're not going to be made perfect. Let us also lay aside every incumbrance and the sin, every weight that so easily besets us. And the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. That means lasting endurance, not giving up the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endures the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We need to consider him. As times get rough, as a great tribulation comes through our trials, our tribulations, our persecutions, think about Christ what he went through, how he endured, how he was tempted in every way as we are, but sinned not, so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, you have not yet, but we need to, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in striving against sin. Jesus did, Paul did, Peter did, how do we think that we're greater than our master? How do we think that we won't suffer the same consequences as all the prophets and apostles and disciples before us? Bubba's shedding the blood physically, literally. When you're living in this world, this cruel, 
awful world of Babylon, there's going to be blood. If we think what's going on in the Middle East now is something, that is nothing, absolutely nothing prepared with what we're going to see with our eyes. We've got to get ready for that. That's something to really think about. That's something to fast about in itself, that we be ready for that time, that we be mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically ready for that time. Because that's going to be mind-blowing. What we're seeing in the Middle East now is one drop of blood compared to what we're going to see with our own eyes. And sugarcoat it because we're going to get ready for it. Something to think about. We shouldn't fear it. Rather, we should embrace it. Paul said, I glory in my infirmities. He bragged about how many times he was stoned, shipwrecked, fat whipped, Oh, Lord! <laughs> but you know what? It can't get no better. But even Christ, the apostles, the disciples, great cloud of witnesses. Because we should be like, why have I not gone to jail yet? I must be doing something wrong. Why have I not been back with you? I must be doing something wrong. I must be holding back. I must be maybe fearful that I would offend someone. Maybe fearful against the government. We need to be like, wow, I can't wait for that electric to go out. Can't wait to lose my car. I can't wait to lose my house. Freedom! Burn it down, baby! <laughs> We need to be, like, embracing it, looking forward to it. I know that's hard to say for some of us at this point in time. But we need to get there. We need to get there. Verse 4, you've not yet resisted. You've not yet resisted the point of shedding blood and striving against sin. When that sin, when that temptation comes our way, we should realize that temptation is a attempt against our life. That temptation, that what that person just said to me, that what that person just did, or what that thought just did, is an attempt to murder me. Is an attempt to destroy my salvation and keep me from entering into the kingdom of God. And we should treat it like that, even if it causes us to get killed. Not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving, and you're striving, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't regard it lightly about Passover. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not regard lightly the discipline of Paul. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor saints, when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Have you been scourged yet? Every son 
That includes the daughters. He scourges every son whom he receives. Spiritually speaking, we must be crucified. Spiritually speaking, we need to die to cardinalness, to worldliness, to sin. Spiritually speaking, we need backwit. Spiritually speaking, we need backwit. Verse 7. It is for this point that you endure it. God deals with you as with sons, and for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? It's that we may live that he disciplines us, that we may repent. When judgment comes on this nation, it be glorious. When judgment comes on this nation and a nuclear bomb missile falls on Florida, when a nuclear missile falls on Los Angeles, when a nuclear missile falls in Washington, D.C., when a nuclear missile falls in Omaha, Nebraska, it's going to be America receiving their back with it. And the blood is going to flow. It's needed. It has to happen. We should not pray against it. We should not pray it won't happen. It has to happen. It's got to. People must die so that they will live. People must receive judgment so that they can live. People must face the great tribulation. It's going to be a wonderful time so that they can live. Because when we look at the church today, I do not see, we do not see a church spotless, without wrinkles, without blemish. When I look at the church today, and I'm talking about the real church, when I see the real church today, the elect, it discusses me. Church today is not ready. We know there's not any pre-trib rapture. We know that. But bear with me. That if Christ was to come today, and we know he won't, but if Christ was to come today, no one would go. He turned back into him. I would not go. I'm not ready. But I've got to get ready. We all need to get ready. And when he does come back, there will be a church, a bride, who is ready. But how is that going to happen? From today until that day of his coming, there must be a purging. There must be a purifying. There must be purifying fires. There must be a pressing, a cleansing. There must be tribulation. There must be suffering. There must be testing. There must be discipline. There must be scourging. These things must happen. So when we see it happen, we're like, God is correcting us as a son. 
God is correcting this as part of his body. God is examining his body. God is getting the living out of his body, perfecting his bride, judging his body. This is so deep. Because we know Christ is about sin, but guess what? We're bringing sin to Christ. Sin in the church, such a disgrace. We need to get to where when we find sin, we just throw up. That it just disgusts us. That's a stink to our nose as it is to his. Even as Jesus said that he would spew the church of Laodicea out of his mouth. We need to get like that. We need to get to the point where sin so disgusts us that we won't turn a blind eye to it in ourselves nor within our congregation. Verse 10. For they discipline us, our fathers, our human fathers, they discipline us for a short time as seems best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. This is for our good. He knows best so that we may share his holiness. So that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. We need this great tribulation. We should look forward to it. We should embrace it. Embrace it because it's going to happen. So instead of looking at it as low as me, look at it as, all right, this is my opportunity to get pressed. This is my opportunity to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ and the apostles. This is my opportunity to set forth a witness to Moses to the Old Testament prophets, that I may be a witness to them. What we do, not only does the law see what we do, but even the saved will see what we do. Go back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Verse 37. Acts 2, verse 37. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That's cutting. That's deep to the heart. That's circumcising the heart. Not in an old covenant manner, but in a new covenant now, that they were pierced to the heart. Removal of the circumcision. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will 
receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan River, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sin. This is something that we're not taught by the churches of Babylon, that when you get baptized, you need to confess your sin. They did this, and this ain't the only place where they did this. Now, were they confessing their sins in prayer? No. They were confessing their sins to John. They were saying, John... I'm a thief, but I repent, or you baptize me. That's what they were doing. That was the manner of the time. It's the manner in which we should still be doing today. Not that we go and follow the Jews or Hebrews, but that we follow the way it's supposed to be done. And this is the way it should be done, is that we hear the word of God, rather be to read in it ourselves or from a preacher or whatever or from a family member or a friend, we hear the word of God. It pierces us to the heart. We say, I surrender. Lord, will you be my Lord and Master? Will you forgive me my sins? And then you go and you get baptized. When you get baptized, you go fully underwater, fully back up. You confess your sins before that. You say, this is what I've done. I stole this, I stole that, I did this, I said this, I did that, and I seek forgiveness of sins. I seek to be crucified. I seek to be drowned in the Lord. I seek to be born of blood and water. And then you are born again, and you come back up. And then you're supposed to lay hands on that person and uh, lay hands on them. That's biblical and ask for the receiving of the Holy Spirit, and it's there if it's sincere and true in their spirit, heart, and mind. I'm going to go to one more scripture in the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5, verse 12. verse 12 right before Peter and 1 John near the book of Revelation verse 12 says 
go back to those. Uh, Seven. Verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. Be impatient about it. We know that he also continues to water, weed it, fertilize it, whatever he needs to do, until it gets the early and late rains. That's talking about first and last resurrection. You too, be patient. Strengthening your heart for the coming of the Lord is near. Strengthening your heart for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, about one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So take, for example, it says, the cloud of witnesses. Take, for example, brethren, of the suffering and the patience. Take, for example, the prophets that spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11, we count those blessed who endured. They were blessed through all their sufferings. They were blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. Look at everything he went through. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but your, but your yes is to be yes and your no is no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? His to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, not just to God, but to one another. Confess your sin. That's hard to do because we've always been taught to hide our sins or to confess it only to God, and that's it. We've been taught that because the Catholic Church goes to the minister and confess their sins, that we shouldn't do that. But the truth is, as... as uh, as much of the, as the Catholic Church is evil and full of false doctrine and lies and deceptions and darkness, as much as they're all that, they have certain things, right? Certain things. You can look at Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Lutheran, and find one, two, three, you know, certain things, right? Just because that they're an evil church, part of Babylon, don't mean that 100% out of 100, everything they do is wrong. We make that mistake sometimes, and we say, well, because they do it, it's automatically wrong. Well, they take communion. It's not wrong to take communion, because they do it wrong, but nevertheless, they do go to a ministry and they confess their sins. In the Great Tribulation, you'll learn more about that. 
And yes, we must go to God first. That we must also confess your sins to one another. That's biblical. It says it right here. We should try not to fight it. Confess your sins to one another. If we do that, then we don't have to face them coming to us. If we just ride out on us and say, I'm sorry, but guess what? I'm not perfect. <laughs> if you just come right out and say, guess what? I got a problem cussing. I know it's wrong. Or I got a problem drinking too much or this or that. Whatever it is, I know it's wrong. I confess it. But I need your prayers. Then that person, hopefully, will work with you and pray for you and fast for you. Get down on their knees for you. Lift you up in, in prayer at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. They will curry you through. You may ask them to go one mile with you, but you will go two miles with them. They ask you to pray, and not only will you pray, but you will cry, you will tear your heart out, you will fast, you will starve yourself to death, you will see that person through. Because it's your brother, it's your sister. It's part of the body of Christ. And we truly love one another, and it's not fake. But if we confess our sins to one another, then we avoid judgment, and you get more help. And you carry one another's weight. And if one cries, the other cries. And if one rejoices, the other rejoices, because you have communion with one another. We are of one mind, one accord, one body, no division. I should treat you more than myself. If I have one piece of bread, I give it to the other person first. That's the way it needs to be done. That's the way it's going to have to come back to it. And we've got to say, why is it about myself that I won't give up? Is it the $5 bill I got in my pocket? I won't give up, even though I know that person over there needs it. I know that person needs it for that. I know they do, but this is all I've got. I'm keeping it for myself. No. If I have to suffer, if my electricity has to go out, they're going to have what they need. That's what we need to get. It's going to take cleansing. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take true love. It's going to take Christ. What are we not willing to give up? Five dollar bill. What is five dollars? Are we not going to give up electricity? Are we going to do everything in our power to make sure our electricity stays on? Are we going to spend $2,000 to put all these solar panels, hook it up, because we're so fearful that we're going to lose electric? Instead of spending that $2,000 to provide how many thousands of Bibles? Are we not willing to give up our car, our house, our job, our career, our money, are we not willing to give up even our family? Are we not willing to give up a certain member of the congregation? Are we not willing, what are we not willing to give up? Are we not willing to give up short skirts? Are we not willing to give up rock and roll? Why are we not willing to give up? Because if we don't give it up, God will take it from us. God will consume it with a consuming fire. God will destroy it. And we need to get our house so prepared 
Our temple is so prepared that when the purifying fire comes, that what is left standing is everything that we are. We need to get ourselves to where we need to get so when the fire comes, we're still intact, that we survived. That is, we in Christ survived. What are we not willing to give up? Are we so proudful that we won't say, guess what, this is my issue that I need help on? Are we so proudful that, that we just going to turn a blind eye to my own sin? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And it says, the affectionate prayer of a righteous man may accomplish much. How can we pray and really expect answers and healing and salvation and miracles and raising the dead and healing the sick and casting out devils and we're still living in the world not giving up that, not giving up this, not giving up that, not giving up this and thinking, we're okay, we're all right. We need to examine ourselves. Dig deep. Cry out. Get down on the ground. Throw ashes in the air. Put ashes on yourself. If you have to do it literally, do it literally. Whatever you got to do, do it deep, do it passionately, do it like your life depends on it, because it does. And so does mine, because of what you do. What you do affects everybody around you. And we take communion with one another. We're only as strong as our weakest link. So we better be helping that person. And we better be confessing our sins. We better be making some professions and pouring our heart out so that they can help us so that we don't bring them down. Because all of our lives depend on this. If we're going to drink from the same cup, what are you going to catch? Our lives depend on it. Amen. Praise God. I thank the Father God in Jesus' name for this message, God, you've given me today. I know, God, your word does not return void nor vain, but shall accomplish the point of which you sent it, God. I say in the name of Christ, I send it in faith and knowledge and belief that this seed of truth of your word, God, will prosper for the cleansing of our souls in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. So I'm going to disconnect here and we'll do some questions and answers. Right now, this moment, we don't have nobody in the chat room, so we don't have to ask them some questions and answers. But anybody that's listening later in the week we, or later today, we appreciate you very, very much. Thank you for listening. And I will be doing the broadcast every week as usual at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for listening. We'll continue services here uh, in this local congregation. We'll continue services, and we thank everybody online for listening.